Hey, it's Duff Dixon, and welcome to the Live Wide Awake podcast. Thank you for being one of our listeners in 88 countries around the world. Now, today is a very special episode because this was a panel discussion that I had the privilege of moderating during our recent Conscious Festival in Singapore on changing the narrative on climate futures. And we had an all-star, all-female panel with Minister Grace Fu, who is the Minister for Sustainability and the Environment in Singapore. We also had Esther Ann, who is the Chief Sustainability Officer of City Developments Limited. She's also one of the time 100 climate. She's an SDG pioneer from 2018. She's a vice chair of the World Green Building Council Corporate Advisory Board, among many, many other things that ESSA does. We also had Dr. Darian McBain, who is the CEO of Outsourced Chief Sustainability Officer Asia. And she was previously the first sustainability officer for the Monetary Authority of Singapore. She's also a UN SDG pioneer for 2021 uh, for sustainable ocean economy and listed as one of Fast Company's most creative people in business in 2020. And we also had MJ Kong, who's the co-founder of Just Keep Thinking, a leading edutainment platform focused on all things science and nature in Southeast Asia. They have a huge following on social media with over 235 followers on Instagram, 149 on Facebook, and 124 on TikTok. They're experts in taking complicated topics and explaining them with simplicity and ease. Now in this episode, we talk about how every decision we take has a ripple effect on our future, where we are with our climate narratives and actions through the different lenses. We're talking government, corporate, and obviously individual and youth and where we might see ourselves in the future. Okay, it's time to live wide awake. Every decision we take has a ripple effect. I think we all understand that, especially those who are in the room today. And while systemic change really does move at a glacial pace, it is important for us to pressure point and figure out the role that communication is actually playing in this conversation. And so we have a lot of narratives, narrative stories. We're telling stories every day. We're communicating. We're using words. But how can we start channeling this so that we can have more impact and so that we can start rewriting the future today. And so I've got this incredible esteemed panel with and I'm really excited, of course, to welcome Minister Grace Fu. This is the first time we've had a minister at the Conscious Festival. So we're very, very pleased to welcome you. So, and thank, thank you. Thank you so much. What took you so long? Um, well, <laughs> I could say the same thing back to you guys. <laughs> okay, so let's dive in. I want to invite you each to share a little bit more about the work that you're doing and also, you know, just how the work you're doing is related to this topic of how we can rewrite the future. So, Minister, we'll start with you. Oh, well, where do I start? I can sort of break it down to three parts. First of all, is policy making in Singapore. MSE, my ministry, looks after several areas that's relevant to climate action as well as sustainable development. In fact, we have a name change in 2020 when I took over because we look at the areas that the ministry is uh, responsible for. Environment protection no longer is sufficient to describe what we do. A lot of the issues that we deal with are for longer term sustainable development. Just give an example when we talked about, say, water. Water, if you look at it as a, from a point of view, you can look at it from a water safety point of view. Are we getting safe drinking water, for example? But a lot of what we do in the ministry is really looking at long-term sustainable supply of quality water. So it's about water security as well. So policy making in four broad areas in the ministry, water, food, 
environment, as well as climate change. We also coordinate the policies across ministries and come up with Singapore Green Plan. This is the Singapore's roadmap towards sustainable development and climate action. It has both climate mitigation and also resiliency. The second part that we do is really to get behavioral change because that's really a very important part. You know, we can have the policies, you can have the grants, you can have, you know, different taxes, but eventually it's really about, you know, how do you get the populace to be part of the action. So, a simple example, I can have recycling infrastructure, but if the people are not sorting properly, it's not structure, then it's really not very effective. So, a lot of it is about, you know, enabling, empowering, informing the public so that they can be part of the climate action and part of sustainable development. So, we work a lot with many of the groups here, for example, like MJ's group and some other groups, we empower them through Singapore Eco Fund, ground up NGOs, you know, passionate about certain areas of sustainability. We fund them, we empower them, give, giving them the resources. A third part, which is really, you know, is really to get sort of global climate action going. We are involved very, you know, seriously in some of the multilateral fora and COP, for example, we're just talking about how some of us are going to be there in a 50 days time in various ways. Singapore will have a Singapore pavilion and we try to bring our businesses, bring our NGOs, bring our you know, panel discussions, really our point of view to international climate action. I'm personally also involved in mission. I'm co-facilitating that track on COP with a Norwegian minister. So we have been really in the foreground of getting sort of consensus, getting policies, you know, ironed out. An, a major area that I've been working on is Article 6. Who knows anything about Article 6? Who have heard of Article 6? Put up your hand. Yay, okay. Yes, I see <laughs> Ruben there. This is the guy that's negotiating. Going to look for him. Actually, this is about international voluntary carbon markets. So, how do countries cooperate and yet bring about activating finance for mitigation and adaptation program? We want to get clear rules so that uh, whatever we do has real impact on climate and also activating finance where it's needed, where justified. So, this is very briefly what we do. Yeah, wow, that was a lot, right? I mean, for one one department of the of the ministry of the government is really covering a lot. So that was enlightening. And Esther, Esther is a huge supporter of everything we've done for years. City Development Limited, part of you know the incredible company that brought this beautiful sustainable building together. So Esther, would love for you to share a little bit more about what you do and again how it's related. Hey, how much time do you have? You know? <laughs> two minutes. You have two I minutes. Think all, those, all the friends, some of the friends here, I know that I started like 20 over years ago. And if I want to simplify it, it's actually we are, we are private sector. We're listed in Singapore, but we operate in 29 countries and regions. As business sector, what we feel is we interface with the public sector, private sector, NGO, people, everyone. And we are in the building sector. People spend about 90% indoor. So how do we change you know, behavior is very important. But if I want to succinctly summarize it, that we look at the ABC approach. A is about alignment. We are small Singapore, but we are a global city. We have to align with best practices, you know, 
base to zero, whether in Singapore we have the you know green plan, five pillars, which I memorize everyone, and especially for energy reset, green building master plan, and all those are affecting everything we do from the business perspective. And apart from alignment, we also need to talk about internal and external stakeholder, the whole ecosystem. We are developer, we are building owner, but we need the whole ecosystem, whether it is the land seller, whether it is the architect, engineer, supply chain, contractors, to be aligned together. And of course, the whole world is setting net zero as the North Star goal. Especially now, we are very, it's very important for us to know there is a direction, not like go south or east, you know. So this is A. B is actually the business value because as a business, we need to maintain profitable. Otherwise, we will not be able to even maintain employment for our stakeholders, our employees. So the business value is very important. And But how do you maintain profitable, not at the expense of the planet and people is what we believe in since we are a firm believer of triple bottom line which i still feel that it's very important but of course we look at planet first because without a healthy planet there's no people no people there's no profits or you know nobody can thrive in this you know in this whole cycle so the c is about collaboration no one can do it alone not public sector not private sector not people sector but that's why i always call myself a busybody so we connect with everyone we want to bring the people together and uh, bring and we also work with financial because financial has the power. Money talks, you like it or not. So we actually have a few, you know, important milestones that we are proud of. The first one was actually before the even the Green Mark was launched. In 2002, we launched the first eco condominium using solar energies to power our clubhouse. So that was the early day of green buildings and also early days in applying technology, solar energy, renewable energy. Milestone that I would like to highlight is actually sustainability reporting because now it's a big agenda. We started our first report in 2008, so we have published 16 reports. And of course, right now it's very useful because everybody is learning how to report according to the global standard set by IFRS, and uh, it's a big subject. And all these actually connected to you know the North Star goal that we actually in 2021 at Glasgow we pledged for net zero using the World Green Building Council framework and standard. When we set a target, we must have the scope clearly and the pathway. You can't just tell people net zero by 2050, I tell you. So because investor wants it and uh, you know stakeholders want it, so every year we have to disclose the good or the bad. The, are we on track? Are we off track? If you are off track, how? what are you going to ratify? So we deal with investor a lot, you know. Over the last three years, I think I've seen more investor than my last 20 years. So in fact, investor, bankers are real, you know, are really serious about making that million dollar decision, looking at your ESG performance. So we, of course, work with the public sector together, the policymakers and also private sector and MJ, we went to the Antarctic climate expedition together. We have big plans to, you know, to do more on education of climate science. And uh, of course, thanks for Stephanie, we have been working together for quite some years. And of course, my good friend here from MAS until now, we are still seeing each other a lot to do advocacy. So I better stop now, otherwise I will hog the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> but I think you can see how incredible the work that S has done for almost.
now in sustainability. I mean, I can't imagine how difficult and the battles that you would have had to been pushing for and fighting for um, back in those early days. So a true green warrior and OG for the sustainability movement in Singapore. Another very powerful woman coming up next, we have Darian. And Darian was the first chief sustainability officer for the Monetary Authority of Singapore, which is quite a mouthful. But anyway, that was a huge role. And so I would love for you to share again a little bit about that and now what you're doing moving forward. Thank you, Steph. So I've got to say first time at the Conscious Festival, but thank you, Steph, for putting it together. It is so important. Worked in sustainability. And I think the thing that is often left out is the culture of sustainability. How do we engage and what is really behind all of this? I mean, just think, everybody's going to net zero. If you picture what does net zero look like, what do you conjure up in your mind? I mean, it's often a kind of dystopian view the world that we really want to live in. So culture and the whole idea of the Conscious Festival, I think, is so important. Consciously make a choice of how do we get to the future. And I don't think enough of us are engaging on that. So as Steph said, I came to Singapore to join the Monetary Authority of Singapore. Very familiar with the Green Plan, as the minister outlined, that I was looking at the green finance part in particular. But Singapore had this amazing integrated approach of how it's looking at sustainability. And now I run an organization called Outsource Chief Sustainability Officer Asia. And the idea of this came because people how do we get people with your amount of experience? I don't want to say how much experience I've had because it makes me look so much older than Esther and I'm like, I can't go there. So we'll just say it's a lot of experience. We don't want to specify. But how do we get people with that much experience like we have on this panel? And so I've really looked at four different approaches and I kind of do them all a bit together, which is why I seem a bit skipped. So part of it is advisory. So how can you have high level strategic advisory and really help companies who want to transform or governments. The next piece is looking at tech. Absolutely need to have technology to help us do that. When I think back to the early 2000s when I did my first sustainability report, it was using Excel. Maybe I Googled a little bit of information. Most people are still doing sustainability reports the same way. So how technology help us get better data reporting, just getting better at being sustainable. The third part is connections. And as we've said, everyone here on the panel, everyone in the audience, how do we connect people and make networks so that we can really better communicate about this movement? And then the fourth bit is academia. So I work with the London School of Oxford University looking at, you know, what is really some of the science, technology, the research behind sustainable and sustainability movement. So really honored to be here today. Thank you. Yeah, no, thank you so much. Again, we're getting such a fascinating cross-section of all the different pieces that need to be playing together on this panel. And of course, we can't have this conversation without having the voice of the youth. And that is what incredible MJ is representing today. And if you're not following MJ, just let your Instagram, just keep thinking. It's a fantastic account. She has almost a quarter million, or have you passed a quarter million yet? I'm not sure. Almost a quarter million followers. And she makes science and sustainability really fun and easy to comprehend and very positive platform. And I think that's also why we exist with the Conscious Festival. How do we make this a positive conversation and sort of, you know, not get stuck in that doom and gloom cycle? So MJ, would love for you to share more about your work. Hi, everyone. Wow, everyone just shared a number of approaches. So for me, I have two. <laughs> so we are mainly, Just Keep Thinking is mainly a social media channel. We create really fun educational videos 
science topics, but we will have a big focus on biodiversity, nature, sustainability issues, and really make it fun and entertaining for the mainstream audience. So our target audience is really the everyday layman out there who might not be as interested in such topics or they don't care about such topics. How do we use social media in such a way that we can grab their attention? Because we all know that social media has the power to reach millions of people globally. So that's one part of my work. The other part is the physical that I do so we started off with the channel first and then people naturally do come you know can you do like a guided tour for us because on the videos we bring them to the secret wild green spaces of Singapore which is really beautiful we have a lot of biodiversity that people do not know and we know without exploring this area it's hard to really create a connection and love for the environment which I think our society still needs at this point of time so we have nature guided tours we conduct workshops learning journeys sustainability learning journeys Bishang Amukyu Park I love that place I think there's a good story there we also conduct assembly talks in school so schools we'll reach out to them we'll give them either a workshop session a booth or an assembly talk yeah so that's the gist of what we do really trying to educate the masses but showing that learning is really fun and sustainability is not something to be afraid about it's like we all can learn we all are learning at our own pace yeah fantastic such an important part of the puzzle that you're filling. So Darren, I want to just pop back to you now. So obviously you do a lot of work with corporates, you know, you're part of the big corporate machine. And what kind of conversations are you seeing is actually moving the needle and what narratives to get corporates to get more engaged in this conversation and to actually be playing the role that they need? So I think one of the big movers is risk. If you really take this from a risk and opportunity approach, and particularly often we look at it purely from opportunity, and yes, there are opportunities, but if you were genuinely taking into account the risk, oh my God, you're really going to take this seriously. If you think about supply chains, for example, even if we look at, say, a move towards electric vehicles, when you look at the minerals that are coming out of the ground, they're just coming out of the ground for all of the companies and all of the countries that have committed to net zero targets. But we haven't actually endorsed all of the mines that are going to be needed to get the lithium, to get the copper, to get all of these transition critical minerals out of the ground. So if you take that systemic approach to risk, to think about where am I going to get my people who I might need in my factories? How am I going to get the water that is needed to do the mining to provide energy? And nobody thinks about how water is actually a key part of producing energy. How are we going to get food the next day? I mean, all at least three times a day, probably more for some of us. If there's no food, actually we're not worried about transition in 2050 because we need to eat now. So what I always start to look at is where are those critical risk points in sustainability and how are businesses addressing those? And yes, you should be able to find some opportunities, but sustainability is about, I think, investing now so that you can continue your business in the future. And if you go way back to the original definition, came up with. It's development that meets the needs of today as well as future generations. And if you start to put that into a business context, it's what do we need to invest in now? What risks do we need to manage now so that we can continue to operate in the future? And I think here in Asia, what I see is the family businesses have a really good concept of this because they are passing their business down to the next generation and then the next generation. So they inherently but that risk and opportunity is usually the lens that I take. 
Yeah, and I think it's such an important point to underline because if companies are not, an industry is not focusing on sustainability now, then there's a chance they won't even survive in the future. And they're also affecting our survival. So I think it's a very important point that you've raised there. And so Esther, you know, you travel the world, you're speaking at all the stages all around all the time. And so I'd love for you to share a little bit about what you're seeing on a global perspective, like where are we and how are we going in terms of actually climate goals? Well, actually, I try to reduce traveling and I would, if there's hybrid, I will go for hybrid. But there are some important events that we really want to fly the Asian flag and also have the presence there to really, you know, advocate what we believe in and also learn from the experience. And I'm sure everyone read about it. You know, this year is a year that we set all the wrong high and low record. Okay, the highest, you know, the since 1840 yeah record hit and also you know the record in terms of like severe heat waves and a drought flood too much water too little waters are also not good for for human being and uh, at the climate week we heard all those from the un you know j all the officers all the officials you know from uh, you know sec jen antonio everyone is saying that global warming has ended is now we are in a it starts just started the era of global boiling so me but i think it is some truth in it and uh, especially i remember on one panel on the clinton foundation the panel was talking about heat health and survival which is very important so we approached the subject based on like built environment medical and uh, one country you know representative from freetown her title is called chief heat officer about heat can you believe it it's not just chief sustainability officer they're so focused because there is another two medical doctor and researcher talking about heat related diseases and actually one doctor just came back from singapore and they was very happy to learn that how singapore has actually preempted and managed dengue fever you know to making it you know really under control because in the tropics you know we all are living in in heat throughout the year right there's no seasons here so how do we control it how do we manage it and how do we maintain healthy and resilient populations and so that we can maintain economic resilience is very important because really you know you can't talk about business and all so i would like to just mention a little bit about risk and uh, in fact in the good old days when we talk about green building and all that everybody is saying that oh why are you so free you know you, you have nothing better to do is it but now actually initially everything about green i mean i'm sure that you go to you know shopping also organic food green green stuff means more expensive which is still the perception nowadays but from a business perspective you cannot just you know focus on mitigation you you don't look at today but look at future so we always try to push the fact that is that cause of inaction is now going to be higher you know the cause of taking action now to preempt you know uh, being caught by you know all the higher material cost operational cost and uh, carbon tax is going to be higher in different parts of the world and even in singapore next year onwards 
more. So how are we going to look at, you know, to preempt all these, you know, higher operation costs? From a business perspective, you don't look at backward. You don't look at just today. You have to look at future. So how do we plan? And we have conducted some climate change scenario planning study, three rounds already. 2018, based on two degree warming. Then 2020, after IPCC say, folks, no longer two degree, 1.5. So we studied the second one. And when the final result come out, we were hit by COVID. So we have to add it all item that it is climate related, you know, pandemic or health issue. COVID may not be the last and that there's actually increased numbers coming up again. So how businesses can survive, can be prepared for hopefully not, huh? some lockdown or whatever. So we need to see how we can prepare ourselves to mitigate and also adapt risk by applying technology solutions. And all these are not cheap. So sustainable finance is, you know, we have to look at. And in 2017, I wrote out the first green bond by a Singapore company. And then after that, you know, green financing has really grown tremendously. You need solutions, you need resources in order to drive change. Yeah, Absolutely. And I think there's that quote that is a perfect analogy for exactly what you're saying, that the best time to have planted a tree was 10 years ago. The second best time is today. And I think this is so true for industry, for us as individuals, for action, everything. And so, Minister, I'd love to now go back to you and understand where are especially, you know, we've got very bold 2030 goals. Are we on track? How are things going? Can you share a little bit more? When I looked at sort of global climate action, I like to describe it as two steps forward, one step back. Since COP26, actually we have not been helped by events around the world. We're just talking about, you know, the latest war in Middle East, for example. It's just added more headwind to the Ukraine war. With the Ukraine war, I think it has really, you know, pushed commodity prices sky high. As a result, because of blockade and to see its impact on food and with fertilizers feeding into you know feedstock of uh, cattle ranging farming and so on actually we see food prices really volatile so that's not helpful as you can see that political pressures around the world particularly with inflation hurting ordinary folks on a day-to-day basis we're talking about in some places in some regions people not able to afford food they can't eat three meals a day unfortunately there's very little appetite in those places to talk about, you know, can you use renewable energy? Can you pay a bit more for new technology? So it's even more important for now to garner international support for climate action. We're talking about access to capital. We're talking about access to technology and also in an affordable and equitable way. And where governments are unable to step in because of constraints, because of fiscal position that's really been... I think the private sector has to step up. And this is where we're looking at finance, we're looking at corporates, we're talking about industry leader to really fulfill this net zero 2050 kind of goals. We see a lot of potential because at the global level, when you know you talked about you know some finance from developed countries to developing countries, actually public finance can only do that much. Private finance, I think, has a lot of potential, huge potential. Esther talked about how, you know, city development, you know, has been providing information to investors, helping them to be more discerning. That's exactly where we need to go. First of all, we need better information 
following with Darren's point, how do you allow investors to be more discerning? Who are the good guys and who are not doing enough? And that reporting is important, good information. So I think on that front, there are a few developments in Singapore. Listed company has to comply and there are standards coming in. Second, really at the MAS level, I think they've done a lot to look at the taxonomy. What's green and what's not green? How do you transit? How do you help countries, companies transit out of a fossil, very heavily fossil-based economy to one that is no more renewable? That phase is not going to be easy because of described, but we need to help countries, we need to help states, provinces, we need to help local governments who is prepared to do so. And that again, you know, is about activating, activating finance from a finance point of view, from a credits point of view, from a carbon credits point of view. So there are many levers that we can move and we must we must move more. The third one really is to then look at how consumers, investors can send a signal to companies. I think that is so important for us, or whether you're investors, whether you're shareholders, to start looking at climate preparedness and start identifying the risks that the companies are putting on to their balance sheet. We're not no, nowhere near where it's perfect. There's a lot of work that we need to do. So I think Darren talked about, you know, impact on climate on your business. There's so many risks that we can talk about, right? If resort in Southern Europe, for example, and you have been having three years of record heat during summer, surely there'll be questions like, you know, what would be the long-term sustainability or the hospitality industry, for example? Are you going to get the same number of tourists coming? So there are many areas where there are risks impacting companies directly. And I think we need to start getting companies, getting investors, about de-risking and taking actions to be more sustainable. At the global level, at the country-to-country -country level, there are still a few discussions that's ongoing. We will push as much as we can. But I must say that given the geopolitical situation that we're in right now, we are actually seeing a lot more trade fictions than we like. The world has benefited from cooperation. If you look at how we have brought solar panels, for example, to where we are today. When I first started to look at this, I was traveling to Germany, looking at installation of solar panels and how they are incentivizing households to install solar panels. The price of solar panels then and solar panel now, I think it has come down to maybe 20% of what it used to be. So that has made solar panel commercially viable. It's level with fossil. So we need cooperation like this, where there is innovation on technology with expansion of capacity in manufacturing in parts of US, in parts of Korea, in parts of China, for example. That cooperation has really broadened, broadened the scale of production and really drive down unit costs. We need that to happen in many, many areas. So we need to fight against protectionistic trade policies. We need to fight against policies that seem to be using environment as a reason, but really it's very that's not helpful and really need to have international cooperation along R&D, along production, along technology access. 
Yeah, thank you. So I think it's quite clear, you know, the role that the government and, and industry needs to play that dance that's happening together. And let's zoom in a little bit into the individuals now. So Minister Fu, just one more question for you. What are you seeing on the ground? What is the conversation in terms of the individual conversation? How is the dialogue with the government? And yeah, could you explain a little bit more there? Well, I see a lot more interest. I think to thank to groups like MJs, the young people are very interested even the older folks are very interested. I always describe this um, to the young people. That sustainability is, is really not, not theirs alone. Many of the older folks, by nature, they're very frugal. By nature, they recycle many times. If you don't believe me, you just go to any grandma's cabinet, you open it up, you'll find many, many disposable many, many times, right? So, but how do we Governize. How do we make that even a more sort of a zeitgeist, a culture of the country? I think that's going on. We are working very closely with the schools. MOE is part of the Singapore Green Plan Ministry. And uh, we're just talking before we came up here. Well, this young lady here used to be a teacher, used to be writing curriculum in MOE. And she's, she just told me that MOE is writing sustainability into the curriculum we need really is for that education to take that lens, that lens that actually it has, you know, a responsibility to, to earth and whatever human activity that we conduct, we need to bear in mind its impact on the earth. And, I, and I'm very glad that it's taking place in MOE. So more action, more awareness being witnessed. But as I said, you know, inflation is not helping because already things are more expensive than before and new technology is bound to be more expensive for the very simple reason that cost is higher because the volume is not as large. You know, just think about ICE car with EV. We have been perfecting the manufacturing of ICE car, diesel, petrol car for five decades. So companies like your VWs, Volkswagen, your Nissan, your Toyota has been driving the perfection and the cost effectiveness of the manufacturing over decades. And of course, EV is just starting and it doesn't have the volume yet. Right? So for us to switch from one technology to another, it's going to be uphill in the beginning. But we, we have to some ways, government policy has to come in to level the playing field. So carbon tax is supposed to do that. It's supposed to put a price on carbon so that carbon intensive technology is now put on a more level playing field than those that do not emit carbon so that businesses can actually take the correct decision when it comes to you know manufacturing and so on. So we will try the very best through policies, through interventions. So for example, the carbon tax regime, we have an element that goes into helping households adopt energy efficient appliances. So if you are, you know, in sort of a smaller household and you like to save electricity because of carbon tax, you can actually look at, you know, installing new electrical appliances, lighting, fridges, water efficient appliances. In that way, I think we can help save money, but through reducing energy and water usage. So lots of things going, but headwind is still there. We need to work even harder.
Mm, thank you so much for sharing. And we are going to open up for Q&A. So just start thinking about any questions you have for our panelists. After one question I have for MJ. So we'll go straight to you, sir. But MJ, would love to hear from your perspective because you are obviously, you know, on social media, you're engaging with so many people with your content. What are you seeing in terms of the conversation? At first, there were a lot of ignorance. And that's not surprising considering that, you know, Singapore didn't really like know about sustainability issues, not until very recently, you know, since the past 10 years. Even in our education system, it's only been recently written into the curriculum. So I'm not that surprised. I think that's the whole reason for me starting the channel. I really wanted to reach out to expand the community because I've always been seeing the same few people at every discussion panel I go to, at every sharing session. Uh, it's as though you're preaching to the choir. I'm like, hey, why are you here again? Like, like we all know each other. We know what's going on, right? We need to expand the community. So yes, with social media, that's there's this ability to really reach out to the masses. But it's a different ball game. You know, it's not exam where people are forced to learn. Therefore, they know you are really there to play the game of attraction. Your videos must somehow capture someone's attention within that very few seconds in a way that allows them to continue watching your videos and hopefully be inspired to do more or to learn more. So that's something that I I struggled with. I think it's not just about breaking down information make it entertaining and attractive to people that is a bigger issue for me yeah so um, but fortunately we've been able to find a formula for that very grateful for all the support that we've been getting through our social media and our videos and the key thing that I realized when it comes to you know communications it's to really find that language that resonates with people that one thing that is relatable to them so that one thing that interests them because they've seen it before they experienced it so, and that translates to a lot of the work that I do on the ground as well. So, for example, I was asked to give a talk on climate change to Premi One kids. I was like, hold on. <laughs> Usually it's like recycling, things that are a little bit more like on a lower level where people can understand, but it's climate change, greenhouse gases. And I was like, okay, 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 let me take on this challenge. So, I explained to the children, it's like, imagine Earth, big, big Earth. The greenhouse gases, the gases that is being produced by the cars, they are blankets. You put on one blanket, the earth is a little bit warm. You put on more blankets, the earth is going to start sweating. And when you put too much blanket, that's where the earth get, you know, overheats and you get global warming. And then, you know, when you are hot, what happens? You sweat, right? The earth is sweating as well. But that causes sea level rise. Yeah, so the kids really got it. And in fact, the daughter from that school was QB director who is in charge of sea level rise. So when I met the director, now I get it too. Light <laughs> <laughs> <Life> bulb moments. <laughs> yeah. So the QB director came talk to me. Hey, you give a talk to my school. And my daughter talked about sea level rise when she never knew what it was the whole time. And I was like, oh, okay. I guess I kind of did it. Yeah. And funny that we talk about food prices also, right? Like in order to be green, sometimes the prices are not as competitive as compared to what we see in a fair price. Like it's always cheaper. So recently I attended a Tampanese green and. So it's like a you know festival for the heartlanders right at the heart of Tampanese Hub. Really, really very good location. You get all the heartlanders, the aunties, the uncles, the families, and people were selling locally local produce there, fresh produce. But obviously they were like two dollars more expensive. So it was really awkward. So there was a vegetable seller there, and there was auntie who came and I was there just chatting with him. And auntie was like, "How much is this, ah?" Huh? Then the uncle vegetable seller was like, "Oh, one packet five dollars leh." Yo, very expensive eh. Then there was this silent, awkward silence and they were just staring at each other. I'm like, okay, I should, I should say something. So I went to ask the vegetable seller. I was like, when do you harvest this? And the vegetable seller said, just two hours ago. Then the auntie was shocked. I was like, oh, two hours ago? Like, 
that's really, really very fast. Like, and then he started sharing, you know, how it takes a long time to actually get vegetables imported from Malaysia. Like, at least half a day, a few hours. Like, store it somewhere. Make sure it's cold before it's really placed, you know, in the he gets it fresh and he was sharing like how he actually grow the produce how he harvested it by hand and the auntie was sold she bought like four packets straight <laughs> and I was like mm, okay so like you know maybe like we share like it's good to you know, think about the future of the planet think about sustainable future but if it doesn't resonate that much with you know the, the people on the ground then you, you kind of lose them you know but when we use you know other we bring in other factors other reasoning that resonates with them eh, then we actually find a solution to it that actually works yeah so I think Thing that I've learned from science communication. Hopefully you guys learned something as well. And I think now you can see the magic that is MJ. I mean, how clear was that? It was just absolutely fantastic. So yes, if you're not following her online, please do now. Okay, and we'll take our first question now, sir. Ladies, thanks for coming to this panel on rewriting the future. The pencils you're holding is so bold and colorful, and you're really one of the authors and editors of our future. So thank you for that. Now, I've got a question that I think only Minister Grace Fu can answer. <laughs> Fine. <laughs> no, no, I appreciate it. Because as you can see, I'm a young guy, which means I'm naive. But I'm not blind to the constraints and trade-offs that you have to think about. But that's it. As a young guy, I'm also what they call a cocktail of passion and anxiety. So forgive me when I ask why, in my opinion, Singapore is so cowardly conservative on our climate policies. For example, you talk about you are in, involved in Article 6, and I, I really appreciate that. And but that also means that you know that the IPCC recommended uh, carbon tax is $135 USD per ton. I appreciate how in 2022 budget we did increase our carbon tax from $5 per ton up to $35 to $56 USD per ton. But you and I both know that this is very insufficient. So how dare a pioneer and leader in sustainable finance when we can't take the owners and go forth and lead the charge in these things. Thank you. Wow. <laughs> we have a real advocate there. Right. Okay, a few things. First of all, we've never claimed to be a leader in sustainability. We want to do our we want to do where we can, but just be very mindful that we are still a very small economy. And I don't mean to give that as an excuse, but I'm just putting the reality. Big markets can put a price and say, if you want to enter my market, you need to have a certain carbon tax because they have the size of the market to back up that policy. But if it's a very small, five and a half million population, if you say, if you don't have this carbon tax, you can't come into this market, they'll say, hey, forget it. Why don't I skip Singapore? Because the market, we have to understand and be aware of the market position that we have. Having said that, when we look at carbon tax, it's really not to try to change the world. It's really to try to change Singapore. And if you think about what we need to do to change Singapore, it has to be something that is a bit like two step forward, one step back. It's almost sounding like tango, right? Because you need to give time. Give time to the businesses to adjust. From zero to $130 immediately, I think a large segment of the industry, the petrochemical, for example, is going to go bust. 
or they're going to leave. Just bear in mind, they don't need to be in Singapore. They can go many elsewhere to do the same activity, maybe not have the same level of carbon tax. So the carbon tax that we have, it's already the in Asia that covers very broad base. We are the carbon tax system that covers from the first ton of emission. If you look out for other carbon tax system, you actually will find that there are various formats of carbon tax. There are some that says it's a cap and tax. So you are forgiven for a certain level and from the next in above, in excess of that level, then you are taxed at a certain level. At this system, the marginal tax is much higher. So we cannot compare our system to one that uses sort of marginal tax. We start from box one or unit one. So it's time really for businesses to adjust. Even as we go from 5 to 25 to 45, businesses are already saying, coming to us and say, hey, that's really four years. And for me to install a new system, maybe a change, a redesign my layout of my plant, it takes longer than that. So we need time. Some plants, for example, has just been installed recently. And when they have invested in the millions, they need time to recover the investments. So it's not time to say, okay, you know, cut out your processes, reinvest, right? So it's really about going at the pace that the businesses are able to digest, are able to adjust meaningfully. In the long run, the marginal tax is something, I think for IPCC, the marginal tax that's needed for the next technology that's needed in order to totally decarbonize. Let me say that again. They looked at how to decarbonize the world and they look at the last technology and say, okay, I need this technology to really decarbonize the world. That is where marginal tax should be, that, that tax rate should be. We are nowhere near there. There are so many things that we can do now to low-hanging fruit. And so our carbon tax system is really to try to do that, to increase over time at the rate that we think is acceptable, that is meaningful, and that has sufficient technology, existing technology in a commercially viable way to encourage companies to work. And the tax system is not a revenue to the government. It's really for the government to give back, to incentivize the company to install technology, to install equipment. So the kind, kind of a carrot and stick. On one hand, we are taking the tax on emission. On the other hand, we are prepared to give it back, provided that you do your part to increase you know, your energy efficiency, to reduce your carbon intensity. You must do something in order to get back whatever tax that you have you know, paid to the government. And of course, one part of it will go towards intervening for low-income family, particularly because you can imagine that some of that carbon tax is going to come through and so we need to also make this change an inclusive one and not leave certain segments of the population, you know, suffering from high utility costs, especially when utility because of oil prices is already at a historical high. It's like steering a mothership that you need to do it gingerly and you hope that in a process you are going to realign so that you're facing the North Star, but at the same time, don't do it too quickly that you overshoot or you, you know, turn it over. 
tilt it over. Some real world example that actually we more than ten years ago we already you know look at green procurement policy, green lease, and of course lately I'm sure you you seems to be very very updated with information. Look at the sustainability reporting guideline and all that globally and also Singapore. And uh, when we deal with SME, they always say Esther, just tell me what we can do to continue to be your on your panel. Okay, when you see. Want to buy sustainable steel, materials, cement, and all that? Tonight, tomorrow, we want it because I have my carbon, you know, reduction target. But the real situation is, it's not so simple. Okay, there are some, but it is far away and also very expensive. Yeah, and then the local, you know, more local, you know, supplier are a lot of SME. They find it very difficult. He said your target is so high, very hard, you know. So we cannot just screen them out because you are not green, right? So this is something that we have to look at, and we want it happen yesterday, but it will not happen. It's like. Set the green building master plan by 2030. 80 percent of all buildings in the Singapore has to be green mark certified. But right now, it's only about 50 over percent. Again, to turn a building, you know, certified green, it's not like something you can do just like that. Yeah. So I think we we have learned to be a little bit more patient, and、uh, otherwise, you know, a lot of things will create more problem, and people will lose their rights. So we are also, you know, listening to the contractors, and you know, when we help, you know, SGX to like talk about, oh, reporting is business case, you know, you know, and you know, I got scolded by a lot of SME and said, I'm not CDL, I don't have a chief sustainability officer, I'm looking at how to survive, you know. So just tell me what is by law, not by law, don't tell me, you know. So this is the the real situation. I'm not exaggerating; it's all real. So I think we need to be. Well, like you, twenty years ago, you know, you say, "Why can't we do this? Just do it!" You know, it's not so simple. Yeah, thank you. Thank you both for your answers and for the such an eloquent question. And I think what I'm understanding here is it's a transition. We're going through a transition. Everyone's playing a part. We're dealing with the mothership, and we're going to take one more question. And I saw the first hand went up over there already. So, hello, hello, hi everyone. My name is Sarv. I'm a New Zealander of Southern Asian and Pacific Island descent, now based here in Singapore. Working in the climate space, originally my question was going to be on the role, balance the need for quick climate and you know immediate action with the need for robust and transparent policies, but I think Minister Inessa has just answered and walked us through that. So my next question is, what is the role of Singapore as a nexus of financial markets, quality control, compliance, and foreign investment in a region of? Where you know the luxury of climate action isn't quite at the top of the list of developing countries to try and actually enact some of that change, regionally speaking. I think first one is really about knowledge sharing or capability building, because actually different countries, different part of countries have different has very varied level of understanding. You know, for UN FCCC, we are supposed to submit our own nationally determined contributions. We are supposed to submit our long term economic development strategy that's in compliance with Paris Agreement. But the fact of the matter is that you know when we talk to you know various officials of different countries, the level of understanding. Is still something that we need to work on, and Singapore wants to do that. Really, for 
Because if the region and if the whole world doesn't do climate action, we will be inundated, right? So we have to look at our own existence and say, okay, it serves us. It serves us as the whole world is acting on climate. So we want to do that and we have been, you know, organizing causes for government officials, particularly of developing countries, particularly of small island states that is similar to us, to be getting, you know, you know, whether it is on or whether it's drawing up your adaptation plan or whether to understand what's carbon credit, for example. This is what we do on technology and capability building. Second point, as you, you sort of alluded in your question, is really on finance. And personally, I'm very, very excited how our financial sort of our role as a financial hub can really play an active role. So when we looked at uh, what our companies, our banks are pledging, green portfolio, that's a very powerful signal, which means that for the next 30 years or 27 years to be exact, they will have to adjust their portfolio so that they will win themselves out of carbon projects, new power plants and coal-fired power plants, for example, and towards renewables or even companies that's in their steel, cement sector that has really high carbon emission to help their companies move towards a more a lower carbon future. So they are also taking up the role of educating, going out, working with their clients to get them into looking, first of all, you all start with reporting. Do you know what's your carbon footprint? And then how do you move from reporting to then getting into action plan and over time adjust the portfolio so that you're really going to reduce your carbon footprint over time. Many things with the banks. MAS, for example, leads a consortia or an alliance of central banks. The chairman of um, the CEO of MAS, Ravi Manon, for example, leads this, chairs this alliance on agreeing on the timetable as well as reporting standards for all central bankers. The objective is, is quite clear, which is of if there is climate action. I mean, without climate action, there's risks with, you know, a world that's two degrees warmer. I mentioned a very simple example. If you're hospitality in a, you know, flood-prone area, then obviously you need to think about, you know, what is your exposure to this sector and how do you prepare yourself to a rising sea level. So central bankers around the world, I think we have, if I memory serves me right, probably about 120 countries now. Central bankers are thinking how to measure the risks and how to de-risk it over time, including basically allowing clearer articulation of the risk profile of the banks and really working with the banks to lower their risk over time. That's number two. Number three, locally, we are helping the SME that Esther talked about to really you know, move into green technology. Government, for example, has a green gov program procurement that we're going to start with several sectors, construction, ICT, events, for example, where it's larger and low-hanging fruit. We're going to impose sustainability criteria in our evaluation and hopefully in using the sort of government procurement budget to work, we will encourage the sectors to really step up on sustainability products and technology. So really is try to shift 
the support to really increase the availability so that other companies who's thinking of buying green will also have more choices and more options on the ground. The government will be reporting its first sort of sustainability report soon. So we are also do what we have asking companies to do. We are asking the listed company to start with reporting, but the government it ourselves as well and the government agencies have pledged to move ahead ahead of national targets so if we are peaking at 2030 as a country the government wants to peak ahead of that and if we are looking at net zero 2050 for the country the government sectors want to be ahead of that so we are using our finance we're using our policies we are using in terms of technical transfer to try to get the, the Singapore system, the Singapore economy, to get the regional economy going. Maybe if I could just add one more thing to build on the minister's response. I work a lot with technology companies and startups, and one of the things that I'm seeing is that Singapore is a great launch pad, whether for this region or globally. So whether it's from Australia, New Zealand, other parts of Southeast Asia, wanting to come to Singapore as a place that's easy to set up a business and then go into the markets in this region, or if you're from the US or Europe and you want to get into Asia, then you come to Singapore. So I think having that business-friendly environment really has helped where Singapore has set up a carbon tax. It does have a structure for sustainability. Businesses want to come here and then it's how they can then disseminate some of that information. So I think that's yet another way that Singapore is working with others in the region. I think as I missed out this point about carbon services, so actually that's a big area that we are very interested to go. So we are already in encouraging or attracting many carbon services, the lights of, you know, very South Pole, for example, to set up shops here. Basically, we are close to the three carbon sinks, the major carbon sinks in the world. We're talking about Amazon, we're talking about Congo, we're talking about Borneo. And we believe that actually there's a lot that we can do. For example, in nature-based solution, carbon credit is going to be something that we're very excited about. And we have, we are building up the capability to look at issues such as reporting. How do you ensure that, you know, the reforestation or, or rehabilitation of the you know land for example is being followed through so how do you verify how do you report how do you measure I think that's really an exciting area for us and you know MTI EDB is really going for all out to attract you know new startups in this area Okay, unfortunately, that is all the time we have. We have already way over our allocation. I'm sure we could have sat here for another two hours because this conversation is so fascinating. But I would like to thank Minister Fu and of course, and I'd also like to invite my co-organizer, Sean and Paula on stage so we can have a group photo and then we'll continue with our programming this afternoon. I'm curious, what did you think about the episode and what were your main takeaways? Is there a topic you want me to dive deeper into? I'd love to hear from you. You can find me at Steph L. Dixon or at Live Wide Awake. If you got something out of the podcast and you want to continue this journey with us, consider subscribing and supporting. I hope that today's conversation stirred something deep within you ready to awaken. And until next time, live wide awake.